Yeah, yeah. I don't like to deal in absolutes a lot, but that is one absolute I'll deal in. Uh, she is just the cutest thing. I was showing Adobe pictures of her earlier. Uh, I literally set my alarm for 30 minutes earlier than I have to wake up so I can turn around and tell her how much I love her uh, because that's how obsessed I am. She's just amazing. Uh, well, another thing you should know about me is I grew up here in the Twin Cities. And for the first 14 years of my life, my family and I attended this mega church that's about 15 minutes from here and it had two campuses. And the campus that we attended had a library and a bookstore in it. And so as a kid, I was pretty obsessed with the library and the bookstore, and I would go there every single Sunday uh, right after church ended, and I would flip through the library and get like the latest Jesus Freak, which I feel like I rented more than probably anybody else in the church. And then I would buy my Testaments, which were these mints uh, that tasted terrible, but it had a Bible verse on the inside of the tin, so you felt really good eating them. And somewhere in the midst of all of that, I discovered the Left Behind series at about eight or nine years old. It's a 16-book series. They had one for the adults and one for the kids, and I can't tell you which version of the series I read, but I can tell you what it did in me. It made me incredibly anxious as a child and incredibly fearful. And so after reading the series, I started having these things happen where all of a sudden I couldn't find my mom and dad in the house, and I'm like, they got raptured, and I got left behind. Or all of a sudden, I would call my brother's name, and I'd be like, hey, Christian, you got to get over here, and he wouldn't come, and I'm like, he got raptured. I got left behind. I'm stuck here. Where are his clothes, right? When's Nikolai Carpathia coming on the scene? Or I'd go in my house, and, and really, I just hadn't picked up laundry from my bedroom, but I'd walk in my childhood bedroom, and I'd be like, oh my gosh, everyone got raptured. I don't know whose clothes these are but they got raptured. Or if it was a little too quiet in the neighborhood when I got out to play, I was like, everybody here, everybody here just got raptured, but I got left behind. So we're gonna have the tribulation. And I'm gonna get a Trib Force hat. It's gonna be great, right? It created this incredible amount of anxiety and fear in me. And I don't know about you as a kid or you growing up or the first time you ever heard about things like the rapture or the end times, but I can guarantee, little show of hands, how many of you guys felt some anxiety about that? and a little bit of fear. And for some of us, uh, it was like, Lord, let me get married before that happens, right? Uh, because it created so much anxiety, so much fear, so much confusion. And, and I think it's because it was so sensational, right? I'm a big Nicolas Cage fan. That's probably an embarrassing fact to admit. But you watch the movie version of Left Behind and like people are getting raptured while a plane's in the air. And you're like, that's not safe. The FAA has some questions about that, right? I mean, it created so much anxiety, so much fear. Everything that you read or watched or, or read about it, it just felt like this thing is going to happen. And when it happens, it's going to be absolutely terrifying. And even as Christians, we felt that. We were like, this thing happens, and it's scary. And I feel anxiety around it. And I feel all this fear. It took me years years to grow out of this fear around rapture and the end times. It probably wasn't until seminary that I started to go, okay, this might actually be a good thing. Maybe I shouldn't feel so afraid. Maybe it's not like what the book said or not like what the movie looked like. Maybe it's actually this really beautiful vision of God's plan for us. But it took me years, and a lot of us, it took us years to grow out of fear, even if we're still feeling it. We have questions around it. There's good anticipation or there's bad anticipation. And, and so often I get messages from people, especially over the past few years, that are like, do you think, do you think we're in it? And, and it usually comes from this deep place of anxiety and not this place of hope. 
But the vision that scripture puts forth for the end of all things is actually incredibly hopeful. It's way more hopeful than we've been sold. It's way less scary. It's way more anticipatory for the people of God. It's something that we actually get to look forward to. And so today's text is coming from Daniel chapter 7 through 9. So if you have your Bible with you, you can open that or, or type it into your phone with me. And over the past few weeks, you've been in the book of Daniel. You've gotten to see the life of this guy who chronicles his journey. You've talked about hope-inspired faithfulness and hope-inspired confidence and hope-inspired trust and humility and devotion. And today, we get to start to look at the end of the book of Daniel. But in order for us to go to the end of the book of Daniel, we have to start at the beginning. And some of this might feel a little repetitious, but we have to repeat it, right? Nebuchadnezzar attacked Jerusalem, and he captured the Israelites, and he captured the royal family. And God's people then, they go into this period of exile. And Nebuchadnezzar and the kings that come after him, they start to shift the culture of the Israelites. And the Israelites start to have to make decisions about whether or not they'll concede to the culture around them. And many of them do. Many of them in the midst of that pressure, they start to become like the people who had captured them. And it looks like all hope is lost for the Israelites. It looks like they are in the deepest, darkest pits. It looks like the promise that God gave them for what their life would look like and the land that they would have, it looks like none of that is coming true. They're stuck. And in the midst of all of that, there starts to be these series of kings, and it's almost like each king that comes is worse than the last. They're more corrupt. They're more twisted. They're more evil than the one that came before them. But then you have Daniel, and Daniel is this character who all throughout the book, he is staying faithful when he's in the midst of exile. And in the midst of a culture that's tempting and trying and pushing him, he's trying his best to continue to follow the word of God. And he maintains his integrity, even in the face of these kings. And in the midst of all of that, Daniel starts to receive these visions. I mean, in these visions, as you read the book and as you guys have gone through it in this series, some of them, you're like, that is a bold vision to have to communicate. It is bold and they're big and some of them are absolutely terrifying. And today we're going to get into some of these visions that feel so terrifying. So if you have your Bible with you, open with me to Daniel 7. Verse 1. In Daniel 7, verse 1, it says this. It says, In the first year of Belshazzar, the king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream, and visions passed through his mind as he was lying in bed. He wrote down the substance of his dream. And we're not going to go word through word through this, but let me tell you about the first vision. So in this first vision that Daniel has, there are these four winds of heaven stirring up the sea. And back in the ancient time, the sea felt chaotic and the sea felt fearful. So from the very start of this vision, it's steeped in fear and chaos. And out of the sea come these four beasts. And I just have to describe them for you to believe it. It's, it says the first one was a lion with wings like an eagle. And at some point during the vision, the wings are torn off and the lion is standing like a human man, and it says that it has the mind of a human. Now the second one is this, it's a bear with ribs in its mouth, and it's saying, get up and eat your fill of flesh. I mean, these first two beasts are terrifying, right? But then you get to the third, and the third one is this, try to imagine this, a leopard with four bird wings and four heads, and it's given the authority to rule. 
And the fourth beast is this. It's a beast with iron teeth. He doesn't even describe what it looks like, just that it's a beast with iron teeth, and it's trampling, and it's devouring everything in its path. And at the end of these visions of these beasts, Daniel describes himself as terrified. I mean, yes, right? Anybody in the midst of a vision like that would have felt absolutely petrified. I feel like if I had a nightmare like that, I probably wouldn't sleep for days. But Daniel has this vision. And these beasts, it's believed, represent these different nations that were oppressing the Israelites all throughout that season. The first one, the lion with eagle wings, it was Nebuchadnezzar and the nation of Babylon, the bear with the ribs in its mouth, it was Persia, which was this vicious enemy. And the leopard was Greece, divided into four parts, which means the four wings. And the iron teeth, a lot of people think that was the Roman Empire, these vicious rulers and these vicious occupiers that when they entered a land, they destroyed everything in its path. There was no chance for life to survive. But in the midst of all of this, there's this abrupt shift. Go to verse 9 with me. It says, and as I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow. The hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. 10,000 times 10,000 stood beside him. The court was seated, and the books were opened. Then I continued to watch because of the boastful words the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and it was thrown into the blazing fire. The other beasts had been stripped of their authority, but they were allowed to live for a period of time. So in the midst of these terrifying four beasts, this man comes on the scene, this man that Daniel calls the Ancient of Days. And as he comes on the scene, you can just about imagine how powerful and all-consuming it is. It says he came in on a throne. Tens of thousands were attending him. There was a river of fire before him. And in the presence of the Ancient of Days, not even the strongest beast among them could survive. Not even the strongest nation nothing could survive the ancient of days. It says at the end there that the other beasts, they had been stripped of their authority, but they were allowed to live. And the rest, the, the biggest beast had been destroyed and thrown into the fire. In the midst of the ancient of days, what ruler or despot or evil leader can even remain? And Daniel continues in verse 13 to say this. He says, in my vision at night I looked and there before me was one like a son of man Coming with the clouds of heaven, he approached the Ancient of Days, and he was led into his presence. He was given authority and glory and sovereign power. All nations and people of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. His kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. So not only is the Ancient of Days on the scene, but this one he calls a son of man is on the scene, under whom all nations fall and are responsible, to whom every single authority on heaven and earth has been given, whose power can't pass or fade, whose dominion can never be destroyed, the one who holds all the power and all the authority. This is a hope-inspired future. Amen? 
It is a hope-inspired future. Romans 5, 8 says this about hope. It says that hope does not put us to shame. And in the ancient world, the ancient authors all throughout Greece and Rome, they understood hope as this. They said that hope is to not know but to act as if you knew to be motivated, to be sustained by an imagined knowing of a future you can't know or to have resolve in the face of uncertainty. That in the midst of this time, when for Daniel all hope was lost, when for Daniel it looked like the people of God were at their end, like the nation of God couldn't possibly survive in the midst of all these enemies coming at it, that each enemy was worse than the last that each enemy stripped away more hope, more power, more dignity from the Israelites. In the midst of all of that, there is this deep, deep hope. In the midst of being a part of a world that constantly shifts the quality, the character, and the actions of those who bear the name of God, so that they look less like God and more like those who oppose them. In the midst of suffering under foolish and evil rulers, in the midst of feeling exiled from a land that they thought they possessed, there is this hope of a certain, not an uncertain, future. This future in which every single nation cannot stand in the face of the Ancient of Days, in which the people of God are, are surrounded by a power and a presence that's bigger than them, the only one that can last forever. So Daniel is troubled, but in the midst of this in the vision comes a word to him about what this vision means. And continuing on in Daniel 7, verses 17 and 18, he says, so he told me and gave me the interpretation of these things. He said, the four great beasts are four kings that will rise from the earth, but the holy people of the Most High will receive the kingdom and possess it forever. And then repeating it, he says, yes, just in case you missed it, Daniel, they'll possess it forever and ever. And then he continues on too, and he says, concerning the larger beast, the fourth beast is a fourth kingdom that will appear on earth. It will be different from all the other kingdoms and will devour the whole earth. It will trample it and it will crush it. The 10 horns, those are 10 kings that will come from this kingdom. After them, another king will arise different from the earlier ones and he will subdue three kings. He'll speak against the most high. He'll oppress his holy people and he'll try to change the set times and the laws. The holy people will be delivered into his hand for a time, times and a half time. But the court will sit and his power will be taken away and completely destroyed forever. Then the sovereignty, power, and the greatness of all the kingdoms under heaven will be handed over to the holy people of the Most High. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all of his rulers will worship and obey him. This future is not only hope-filled, this future inspires hope. You see, this future, it tells us that in the bleakest world, there's this light that breaks forth, this glimmer of a certain future that might feel uncertain, but is just as true as the day it was written, a hope that this is not the end, that what's wrong will be made right, not might be, that what's wrong will be made right, and that there is another king. And this king, he doesn't have power that's stripped away. This king, he's, he's not confined by time and circumstance. This king is an everlasting king, the king who has always sat on the throne, the king who when he comes to rule and reign, nothing else, no other nations can stand in his midst, a king that doesn't divide nation but gathers nations together, 
a king whom everyone worships in their own language and their tribe and their tongue, a king who when he arrives on the scene comes in all power and all glory and all majesty. An amazing hope in the midst of the bleakest time And then Daniel, in the midst of this, he has a second vision, which I always find kind of interesting because I feel like after the first one, I would be like, you know what? I'm good. I'll wait for next season. It's okay, right? But in the midst of this, Daniel has this second vision. And and the vision gets interpreted like this. The angel says to him, it says, he said, I'm going to tell you what will happen later in the time of wrath because the vision concerns the appointed time of the end. The two-horned goat is the ram that you saw that represents the kings of Media and Persia. The shaggy goat is the king of Greece. And the large horn between his eyes is the first king. The four horns that replaced the one that was broken off, those represent four kingdoms that will emerge from his nation but won't have the same power. And in the latter part of their reign, when rebels have become completely wicked, a fierce-looking king, this master of intrigue will arise. He will become very strong but not by his own power. He will cause astounding devastation and will succeed in whatever he does. He will destroy those who are mighty, the holy people. He'll cause deceit to prosper. He will consider himself superior. When they feel secured, he will destroy many and he'll take his stand against the prince of princes. Yet he will be destroyed, but not by human power. And after this vision, it says Daniel became exhausted for several days that he was worn out from these visions that were coming to him that just felt like they just kept coming and coming and many of us are exhausted. We're exhausted when we look around. We're exhausted in the midst of feeling exiled. We're exhausted participating in a kingdom where it feels like the rules are different than the ones that we know to be true, the ones that actually work. And in the midst of these visions and even with the glimmer of hope, Daniel is exhausted, but he's resolved. You see, the end of that vision, it seems terrifying. For sentence and sentence, the angel keeps going on and on and on about here's how terrible the king is going to be. Here's what he's going to do to the people. I mean, even your strongest among you, he's going to subdue them. He's going to have intrigue. And at the end of all of that, there's this sentence where he says, yet he'll be destroyed, but not by human power. So Daniel, in the midst of this, he is exhausted, but he knows that there's work to do while he waits. So Daniel gets to work, and it's the type of work that the Lord's people are called to. Daniel pleads, and he fasts, and he prays, and he mourns. It says that he puts on sackcloth and ashes. He says, so I turned to the Lord, and I pleaded with him in prayer and petition, in fasting, in sackcloth and ashes. He pleads, he fasts, he prays, and he mourns in the midst of these visions, even with the hope that will appear. And Daniel's prayer is incredibly beautiful. At the end, or at the beginning of chapter 9, it says this. It says, I prayed to the Lord my God and I confessed, Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned. We've done wrong. We've been wicked. We rebelled. We turned away from your commands and your laws. We did not listen to your servants or the prophets who spoke your name to our kings, our princes, and our ancestors, to all the people of the land. He said, Lord, you are righteous. But this day, we're covered with shame. He begins by calling on this God who he knows is big and strong and powerful, even in the midst of God's people's failings, 
even in the midst of the ways that they feel like they're falling short of the vision that God has for them, even in the midst of the real ways that they've capitulated their own power within culture, the ways that they've given up what it meant to be the essence and the hope of God's people in the midst of society, he calls on this God who even in the midst of that is holy and is loving and is gracious and who is mighty to save. He goes through the prayer and and he calls on these specific attributes of God. He calls on the God who brought his people out of Egypt, the God who delivered his people from the darkest of circumstances, the God who gave the law of Moses, the God who was loving and caring enough to, to communicate what it looked like to be God's people with God's people. And he calls on him, and and he ends his prayer by saying this. He says in verse 17 of chapter 9, he says, Now, Lord our God, hear the prayers and the petitions of your servant. For our sake, Lord, look with favor on your desolate sanctuary. Give ear, our God, and hear. Open your eyes and see the desolation of the city that bears your name. We don't make requests of you because we're righteous, but because of your great mercy. Lord, listen. Lord, forgive. Lord, hear and act. For your sake, my God, don't delay. Because your city and your people, they bear your name. You see, I think sometimes when we, when we tend to think about this, this period after this evil time in Israel's history, or even this period in our own lives when we read in Scripture that everything will be made right, that there is a kingdom coming, that there is a king that's more powerful. I think sometimes it can feel like escapism, right? Like, I'll just wait until that time comes and, and I'll suffer under this for a bit. But Daniel shows us that the response and the invitation, it's not to escape, but it's to remain rooted and responsive, both individually and corporately. Daniel includes himself in his confession, but he also includes the nation of people that he knows God loves that are falling so short of who God's called them to be. He engages in meaningful remembrance. He keeps reminding himself, the God who called us out of Egypt, the God who gave us the laws of Moses, this God who all throughout our history has shown up and will show up again. He keeps calling on God's qualities. And at the end of all that, he engages in prayerful petitioning. He says, we don't make requests to you because we're righteous, We make requests of you because of your great mercy, because we know you love and you care about us, and and we want you to act and respond. I love at the end that there's just these like two or four word punctuated phrases, Lord, listen, Lord, forgive, Lord, hear and act. It feels to me like the prayer of an exhausted person, right? Lord, just listen. Lord, just hear and act. Lord, just forgive. I don't have much more words than that. You see, the hope in the midst of all of this is that this is not all there is. That even on the days that feel the bleakest, even in the midst of times in in that world and in our world where we feel like there is no way out, even, even within God's people, even within God's church, we've gotten something wrong. It's, it's hurtful, it's harmful, even in the midst of our culture, even in the midst of our politics, it feels like there's just no way out. And, and the response for us is not escapism to say, okay, I'll sit and I'll wait until everything is made right. The response is for us to be a part of making things right. For us to be invited to, to both hope in and trust in the ultimate deliverance of the Lord, but for us to participate in his kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. 
for us to be the people who in the midst of that are mourning and praying, for us to be the people who are petitioning God and reminding ourselves and others about the quality of a God who has shown up before and will show up again. This moves us. The the idea that this isn't all there is, it moves us. When I think about that, it moves me internally. It moves me internally toward hope to say, okay, this might feel bleak. This is really hard. I, I don't know what the response is, but I have this hope within me that the same God who came in power before will come in power again. The same God who on the cross demonstrated solidarity with his people will be with us again. The same God who led us into victory against all the powers and the principalities, he's going to lead us into victory again. This is not all there is. But not only does that move us internally, but it also moves us externally towards rooted responsiveness towards this idea that we don't have to sit and wait, but we can be a part of God's work in the world today. That when we see things that feel just so devastating, when we see things that for us feel like this is as bad as it can get, when we see things that for us lead us to hopelessness and despair, that we're invited to remind ourselves that a kingdom is coming and a kingdom has come. And it's breaking through in the smallest, littlest ways and to find those means of hope, but to also respond within our own lives, just like Daniel did, that when we feel like everything is lost, that we're calling out to God and we're saying, Lord, listen, Lord, forgive, Lord, hear and act on behalf of me and on behalf of your people. One way that we do this, and I love that that you guys do this Sunday after Sunday, one way we do this is by remembering the Lord's Supper is by remembering the life that Jesus lived. The fact that when Jesus stepped on the scene, he changed the world. And it wasn't just the cross that changed the world, though that is one of the most important things of the story of Jesus, but the life that Jesus lived ushered in a new kingdom, a new way of living, a new hope for people, a new way of walking in God's world as God's people. And we remember the death that Jesus died, that when Jesus died on the cross, he died on the cross carrying with him all the sin and all the shame so that he could be with us and we could experience life with him, that we could have solidarity with Jesus, that we could actually experience the hope and the promise of being forgiven so that our lives can be transformed and can be changed. And we remember the promises that Jesus made. Not only the promise of what he was going to do on the cross, but the promise that he would come again. He's completed one of the promises already, and the other one is in the works. Amen? This promise that Jesus would come again, that the world would be made right, that this is not the end of the story for the people of God, but that there is this deep, deep hope of a kingdom that's coming that cannot pass away, that cannot be changed, that can't be transformed by the powers of this time, but will endure forever. And when we participate in the Lord's Supper, we do so in response to God's great love for us. That it's because of the Lord's love for us, it's because of the Lord's mercy for us, that we're able to approach him and say, God, things feel really messy. We need you to be our great hope. That just like these visions, how terrifying and exhausting they felt, that at the end of all of them, there was this glimmer of hope, though, that this king was coming, and this king was bigger and stronger and more powerful than anything that stood in his way. It's this beautiful way 
that we get to remember the true story of Christianity, this true hope of what it means to follow Jesus, this hope we get to carry with us in Jesus' death, but also in Jesus' resurrection, and that Jesus will come again. So I want to invite the worship team back up as I pray. Lord God, thank you. God, thank you that your words are deep promise. God, I'm so grateful that as Daniel recounts his visions, that it doesn't end on scary, that it ends on hope. God, I'm so grateful that, that as those visions get interpreted for Daniel, that in the midst of all of it, there's this glimmer that this kingdom is coming and this kingdom is going to destroy everything in its past. And even in the midst of Daniel's devastation and destruction, even in the midst of the ways that he was exhausted by what he saw, God, you sustained him and you sustain us. God, you are with us. You love us deeply. You have great mercy on us, both individually and for all of us together. And God, we call on that mercy because we know you freely give it. God, we call on you because we know you show up. God, we are with you. We want to see you work and act in the world. God, we want to see the hope and the promise of your future and our future with you. God, not only someday, but also right now in the ways that that moves us to respond while being rooted in who you are. And so God, lead us in that way. God, lead us as, as we seek to be your people in your world. God, guide us, be with us, open our eyes, comfort our hearts. God, walk with us in the days to come. And we pray, amen.